doesn't matter how many sensors you put out there, how smart AI you have, or how detailed your digital twin is, you will never be able to make good long-term predictions. But of course, for short-term predictions, I think there's a lot of potential. You're listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders on how they create optimal value in a smart world context. We combine strategy and technology talk to absorb reality, embrace uncertainty, and to go from path dependency to path creation. It's smart cities, it's smart buildings, it's data strategies, it's construction, real estate, and industry 4.0. And most of all, it's smart people. And remember, it's the data that you don't have that will change your life. With your host, the future shaper, the ecosystem architect, Nicholas Wern. Welcome to the Beyond Buildings podcast. And today we're talking to Marcus Wayland. And you know what to do, Marcus. Please tell us who you are, where you come from, and everything that we need to know about you. Thank you. So I'm from Sweden. I'm super excited to be on the podcast. I'm, of course, excited about digital twins, and that's probably why I'm here. But I have my background as an engineer in computer science. I started working in the field of artificial intelligence right after I finished my master's degree. And I have also been working quite a lot in public transport. So that's something I hope that we will get a chance to talk about. I have an executive MBA also, so I have some some of the business side with me. I'm basically very excited about artificial intelligence. I'm kind of a social nerd. I like to go deep into things, but I also like to have a big network. That's perhaps a short introduction of who I am. Awesome. For the listeners, I didn't prompt Marcus to tell us about Digital Twins. He did that on his own accord, uh, but I'm definitely happy that we can talk about these kind of things. So what do you do on a daily basis? I am the deputy CEO of a consultancy firm in the AI space that is called Savantic. So Savantic basically implements artificial intelligence or machine learning in a lot of different industries, but we're working, for example, with autonomous vehicles, also heavy industry like gas industry, steel industry, nuclear, and we also help a lot of med tech companies. That's another area where they use a lot of machine learning and where we come in. What's unique about Savantic is that we're only 20 people, but every consultant has a PhD. So we're pretty close to the research world and we have good connections with big universities. We started out doing a lot of computer vision and also physics models and combining models of physics with machine learning. And in the computer vision space, we started before deep learning was big. And then when deep learning came, we started to apply that technology and then we could see all the applications of that into a lot of different areas. So that's perhaps why we're now quite quite diverse and working also with, for example, natural language processing and other technologies within uh, machine learning area, so to speak. And I also started a startup to help people understand the possibilities with machine learning, teaching courses. And that startup is now a subsidiary of Savantic. So we are still giving courses then through this subsidiary that is called Savantic Institute. Interesting. We have to take it back a notch. What are the problems? Depends a lot. I mean, there is certainly a hype about AI. So some companies might contact us and say that we want to use AI for this or that. But those are not the companies that we are the customers that we are most excited about. We like customers who have a problem and we learn about their problem. And then we find out what technology we can apply. So we don't need to use AI 
for example, we started pretty early understanding how physics works. We started to develop all these theories about gravity and things like that. And because we have models for how that works, doesn't make sense to put that all the data in about if you're dropping an apple, for example, and you see how it falls. You can record that with a video sensor and then you can have a deep learning system understand gravity. But that's just a very long way around. It's much faster to just use the physics models that you know how they work. So basically, we also use all the knowledge that we have of physics and of chemistry and biology and other things, depending on what type of project it is. And then we can combine that. So just to, to come back to your question about what kind of projects we like or what kind of project we solve, one example, very typical example from uh, medtech industry, usually they have some kind of sample that they want to analyze. And of course, in AI, the most famous example is to look at radiology or look at lung cancer. You have these images, but in our case, it could be anything, you know, it could be blood samples. So they come to us and they say, okay, we are interested in analyzing blood samples. And we heard from another customer that you helped them with something. And then we can help them to pick the sensors, for example, to get the right type of measurements to understand what they are trying to do. That's part of the data strategy. How can we extract data from this sample that we can analyze? We can also help them, of course, to build a model then to, to analyze something. But very rarely we come in with the expertise in their particular area. So we have only a very small part of the solution. The customer has the, the large part of the solution, all the knowledge of their field. So it usually starts with a process where we need to get to know each other and we need to understand their problem area and they need to understand the possibilities with the different technologies that we, that we can use and apply. And sometimes that ends up, okay, we need to have some kind of deep learning here and that we do that. But sometimes it's something much more simple. Maybe it's linear regression or maybe it's a physics model or depending on what type of problem it is. And then we can help them with that, implement that. But I would say that the large knowledge is really an analyzing the data, understanding the area that the customer is in and how to get their knowledge to inform the models. That's basically the way we work and the type of projects that we also like. Super interesting. I'm just trying to sort of like figure out how to take it more into the smart building space. But I definitely like what you're saying that it's not so much about them understanding everything about AI or you understanding everything about their domain, but actually somehow trying to come up with what are the best of both worlds and how to capture knowledge and all these kind of things. What else are you doing in manufacturing space? So in the manufacturing space, of course, using computer vision is an enabler for a lot of companies. So if you have a process where you're manufacturing something, you can use computer vision, for example, to find quality issues or to track something through the production process. Or you can use it for a lot of different things, basically, if you have cameras or other things like that. But it could be also a set of lot of different sensors that is looking at something. And I think this is relevant also for buildings. You can connect a lot of different types of sensors and gather that data. And I think one thing to, that is important to understand is that creating data is really, really cheap. It's dead cheap today to create a lot of data. So if you have a factory, for example, and you would like to create a digital twin and you can put cameras in that factory, you can get 1,000 HD camera chips for about $10,000. And then you can stream data with those. So you can stream in 4K, for example, that's 15 megabytes per second per camera. So you will get 15 gigabytes, basically, of wireless transmission. So then you need to find that. I have about 
10 megabytes wireless transmission where I sit here in recording this podcast. So a factory then needs 1,500 times faster than that. And there are about 30 million seconds in a year. So that means you have 450 petabytes, so 450,000 terabytes of data only from these cameras that you bought for $10,000, which is nothing compared to the other costs that you have. And, you know, processing that, if you want to process that on Amazon, it's going to cost you about, you know, $15 million per year to process all that data. And this is where we can come in, I think, and, you know, help someone if you have a smart building or whatever you have to decide, you know, what parts of this data is useful How can we scale this data down so that we can actually store it and work with it? Because even searching through tons of terabytes of video data is really difficult. One thing of just storing it, but once you want to process it and undo all these kind of things on top of it and also combine it with other data sources, like you said, then it's not $15 million. It's more than that, definitely. And I think when the cloud prices are also going up, so once we, I mean, we started this at 15 million, now it's 15.5 million. I think that that's where it's going. That's interesting. Okay, so you come in and then it's not only, you know, when after the fact, but you're actually helping them with the data strategy and what they're going to do with how to connect these things as well. These are our favorite projects when we can come in and actually help them pick the sensors because we see this a lot. And this is also something that I wouldn't say I'm skeptical, but it's a challenge with some digital twin projects. I want to imagine a future where we can connect a lot of digital twins into an ecosystem. And when we go into a new project, or if we have a new AI project at the factory or something, there's already a digital twin there and you have all this data and you can just start working very quickly. I remember when you were a kid, when you went to Ikea, you went on this, what I call like these ferries, and you went into this ocean of balls, right? And you jump in there, you're super happy, and you got all these balls that you mean, that's what you want to get into, right? To have these standardized data sets, to have quality data, to have tag data, so that you can do these traversals and do all the things that you want to do. But is that the case? Are we there? Yeah, exactly. That's the dream, basically. That would speed up things a lot. But the challenge, I think, is for a lot of the applications that we are doing, that you can use a smart AI as you want, but it doesn't matter if you have really poor sensory data or if your sensors are not fit for the task that you're trying to give them. So let's say you have quality assurance, for example. If you have picked the wrong camera or the wrong sensors uh, to do that, it's going to be impossible to find some kind of quality problems. But what is the impossible part? We all see the CSI you know, where you zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in yeah. <laughs> in infinity, right? In respect of the data quality. That's not the case. But are we talking about that? Is that the fact? It's like the pixels, they can't support the use case of actually understanding what they're looking at. Or is it that calibrated wrong? Or what do you mean with poor quality of sensors? We see a lot of different things. But one thing, for example, is lightning. So usually you might get a really good camera, but you're not thinking about the lightning. And if you select the lightning in the wrong way, you're not going to be able to capture certain things with the camera. And also sometimes when you use sensors, we have a lot of projects where we have tons of different sensors. So we might have radar or microwaves and infrared and lots of different sensors. And sometimes these sensors are sort of intelligent sensors. So they are already doing a lot of processing and then they're just sending back pretty simplified signal, only parts of the data. And we need to get to the real data to be able to do the analysis. We want to do what's called late sensor fusion, basically, where we 
take the input from all the different sensors and we don't decide anything early. We decide as late as possible what the analysis should be. And this is part of the challenge. And also going back to the examples with the 1000 HD cameras, of course, you have to do some kind of simplification or you will get into these 450 petabytes per year. And this is the challenge, I think, and it can be quite a challenge also for digital twins to get this kind of data flow that needs to be fast also to work, where you have to simplify data and you have this ecosystem. And still, you don't want to decide the use case in advance. You want it to be like IKEA, where you can go in and you say, these are all the possible use cases that we didn't imagine that we can now tackle using this data. So I think that's part of the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this is an example, but from this podcast, there is a setting that is, you know, have like echo cancellation. My podcast guy, he hates that because it cancels out the raw data and it just destroys everything. He can barely work with it. And I think when you have that times two, three, five, ten, then it's also like almost an exponential problem that you can't really work with the data. And I think going back, having been, you know, management consultant and this big data initiatives and data lakes, that has historically also been the problem that you're feeding all this data into something. And then the last 10 years, a lot of data scientists have sort of unfortunately become data engineers because they've tried not being able to work with the data. Let's say the world is not a fantastic place always. So you come in late. You want to do late sensor fusion, but you're coming into a world of data swamp where the data is horrible. What do you do? Yeah, sometimes it's actually better to start recollecting the data. Is that what customers want to hear? No, that's certainly not what they want to hear because they've probably spent a lot of money already collecting data and they think they have great data. Usually what we would like to do with the new customer is we come in and do a pre-study of some sort and we make a second opinion on whatever solution or whatever they have in place at the moment. And part of that is also looking at the data. So with some customers, we come in, we look at the data and then we present a data strategy for them. And then we have to leave, you know, it takes six months or a year before they have collected the data that they needed because they collected it in the wrong way before. And then we just have to accept that we tell the customer, this is what it is. We recommend that you restart your data collection. There are some things that we can do now, but it's just going to be much more efficient if we can go back and do this on real data. That's the way things are sometimes, even if they have a lot of data. So it's just not about the amount of data. The quality of data is very important. Absolutely. I think that's super interesting. But going back to digital twins, let's say, okay, instead of waiting six to 12 months or whatever that could be, right? Is there a way to fetch the data and simulate what would happen over six months or one year or two years so that you can come back in a week instead of waiting a year? Let's just play with that. We have a sense of urgency. Is there a way to simulate these kind of things as well? Or do we always have to wait? No, I think this is a very valid point. And actually, this is where I get really excited about digital twins. What I feel is a digital twin. I think there's there's some kind of physical asset. And then there's some digital representation of that. So it could be a sketch or a 2D model or a 3D model. It could be different levels of detail and scale and so on. And then data flows from the physical to the digital world. And decisions, or you should be able to to do things in the digital representation that affects the physical world, right? But then there's this other thing, and that's the thing that you can do also simulations. And if you have built a good digital twin and you have the capability of actually simulating things, then it starts to get really interesting. AI can work with simulated data, 
But of course, the quality of what the AI does is never going to be better than the simulation. So then you have to be really sure that your simulation is you know, physically correct. But that's why you need the emulated data. So this goes back to a conversation I had with someone It's A-free. So he basically said that there's a difference between emulated digital twins and simulated digital twins, which is also the fact when I talk to people at Stanford who run autonomous vehicles, that's absolutely a must because the AI can only be as good, exactly what you're saying, as the data that they're working with. And if all the data is simulated, you never know really if it's going to so like affect reality or if it's going to improve reality because you're always basing it on simulations. But if you're basing it on emulated data, that is quality that is tagged and standardized, so to say, as much as you can for a week's time. And then again, like running those simulations and predicting what that would be in over agent-based models, agent-based systems, basically. This is what gets me excited as well, just because of the time aspect, that we can simulate what will happen in the next 10 years or five years or two years. And it's not about 100%. But if we make a decision that is, you know, with a 90% confidence, it's still better than making decisions out of nothing or waiting a year or something like that. Is that what you also see with digital twinities? There's a lot of hype and confusion also about it. So, for example, one of the things is that some people expect digital twins to be able to take care of the butterfly effect. If you had a really good digital twin, you can basically predict anything if everything is a digital twin. But we can see this about the weather. The weather is a fantastic digital twin of the world. Millions and millions of sensors collecting data all the time. And we know exactly how the weather works. It's just a few very simple differential equations. But they are extremely unstable. So it doesn't matter how many sensors we put out there. We cannot make weather predictable. We won't be able in 100 years to predict how the weather is going to be two years from now. That's never going to happen because it's just simply impossible. It's not about knowing all the data because the equations are very unstable. The only way we can get there is if we start controlling the weather, of course. That would be a different story, but that's a very unstable system. So, And there are many unstable systems. So it doesn't matter how many sensors you put out there, how smart AI you have, or how detailed your digital twin is, you will never be able to make good long-term predictions. But of course, for short-term predictions, I think there's a lot of potential. And also, Artificial intelligence can also be used the other way around. So if you have a lot of data in your system or in your digital twin or whatever it is, you have a lot of data and you don't quite understand how different things are affecting each other, then you can use deep learning or AI to basically build a simulator and use that AI to deduce what's the future going to look like. And then you can start measuring, you know, how stable is this? If your process is very stable, then maybe you can predict a year If it's not so stable, maybe you can only predict an hour, but still you get this capability. And the other thing I wanted to say is that, which you touched upon is about data augmentation. So basically, if you have some data, maybe you can create a lot more data from that to use for training AI. And there are also a lot of different strategies around that, you know, how we can do that. We use data augmentation and also emulating to create data a lot for autonomous vehicles with some customers. So there are many possibilities for that, which I haven't seen explored in factories or in that setting or in smart buildings or anything like that. But I think that would be really exciting. Yeah, same here, especially because, you know, this is a rabbit hole because you said you're going to wait six months to one year and then you come back to the customer. The customers want the problem solved. You want to solve their problems because you want to make money and, of course, solve problems and find these oceans of balls that you can play with. 
So I love that fact, but exactly what you said. I mean, I haven't seen that much in buildings or in factories or even smart cities, but I think this is phenomenal and definitely a recipe how to get the world that we need much, much faster. And we don't have to wait, right? But there's also one more thing which I've seen actually in buildings, and that is, you know, running the building from the future. You don't need any sort of like historical data. You take in the data so like that is flowing. You run that on the edge, and then that you can run the buildings from like one or two hours from the future. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. And if you like this episode, make sure to tune in to the next one and also see if other episodes could be something for you. Your host, the master of the metaverse, Nicholas Wern. 